Never be the one who says, I have no idea. Unlock the full picture and get unlimited access to unique data and respected business journalism that advances your understanding and business. Subscribe today at housingwire.com slash membership. Welcome, everyone. On today's Housing Wire Daily episode, we're going to cover the National Association of Realtors legislative meetings, Redfin's recent fair housing settlement, and more. I'm Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends, filling in for Sarah Wheeler, the Editor-in-Chief of HW Media. My guest today is Senior Real Estate Reporter Matthew Blake to give us an overview of the week's news. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Tracy. Yes, yeah, so you're at NAR's legislative meetings this week, and mm-hmm. I know you wrote a little bit about how they're, um, you know, they really want to get Congress involved in goosing housing inventory. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're hearing at NAR and um, give me some of the highlights. Sure. So we're recording this, you know, on on Tuesday morning of so it's day two of a five day conference and. Yesterday, kind of the culmination of the the first day of the NAR legislative meeting, which is being held uh, not quite in D.C., but in National Harbor, Maryland, um, is base- was basically this this policy form where uh, Shannon McGann, I believe her name is, um, she is the uh, head of sort of legislative advocacy for the National Association of Realtors, and she moderated a discussion with National Association Realtors. Uh, leadership past and present, like people, Harley Opler, the former president, like posed a question and that kind of thing. Anyway, the gist of it and what's interesting to our audience, perhaps not at this convention, is that they basically outlined their legislative goals for the upcoming year. And the main legislative goal, the biggest legislative goal is more inventory, getting more housing inventory out there, getting more homes built, and then increasing the number of homes that already are on the market to be owner-occupied homes. And they actually have like, you know, purely in my opinion, a couple of like, you know, pretty interesting, innovative ideas to do these things. Like they want to, for example, uh, there's this Revitalizing Shopping Centers Act, which is you know, there's a lot of dead malls, you know, we've, I don't know, there's been movies good and bad about sort of the demise of the American mall. And so if there are these sort of spaces, why don't we convert them into housing? And then by the similar token, there's a bill to give federal grants to convert office buildings, downtown office buildings into homes. And and then there's kind of more traditional legislation, one uh, proposed by Amy Klobuchar, the Democrat from Minnesota and Rob Portman, the Republican from Ohio, to basically just like give more tax credits to people who want to build homes and people who will then ensure those homes um, turn over to owner-occupied, you know, basically a home builder's tax credit. And all of these things have been referred to the House Financial Services Committee. All of these things have sat there you know, I'm, I'm, I do not cover Congress. I do not, you know, cover Washington. But, you know, what I can say, what was clear from the meeting yesterday was sort of a sense of resignation about some of these 
pieces of legislation that kind of even the National Association of Realtors, the biggest lobbying spender, uh, along with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, even they might not have the clout to get a meaningful home building or or tax credit bill, you know, passed through Congress this session. Yeah, I mean, I I know um, in my you know experience with the National Association of Realtors that this housing inventory or housing affordability have been constant issues that they have tried to um, remedy over the years. So it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how far any of this legislation goes and, and whether it's a priority with the administration and that as well and with Congress. So let's hope because I feel like there's a desperate need to produce affordable housing and increase inventory. Are you getting a sense that anything is different from the past that they're recommending? You said the shopping malls, but is there anything that you feel like has a, I mean, I know you don't cover Congress, mm-hmm. but but really is a little bit different or has the opportunity to really change things? Well, I think what's different is that, you know, I mean, obviously the National Association of Realtors is always going to want to like have more homes, like, you know, in the paradise of the National Association of Realtors, you know, everything is a home and real estate agents are doing like, you know, 20 deals a day or something. But like, I think what's what's different this time is that, you know, the drumbeat of we need more housing, we need more inventory is sort of at a crescendo where like Freddie Mac had a report a couple of years ago saying inventory was at an all time low. That's before the supply crunch of the pandemic. And Logan here at Housing Wire, he's writing all the time about sort of the demographic shift. A bunch of people are about to turn 35, kind of peak home buying age, I guess. And so I think that what might be different right now is just that a lot of people uh, recognize the need for inventory. Um, But in terms of like, yeah, in terms of like what they're suggesting that's different, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that like, Again, I was kind of drawn to the converting commercial real estate into residential real estate bills. I thought those were interesting. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure how novel they are, but I thought that there was something novel about the the office building one. I mean, this is a situation that we've been reading about ad nauseum since the start of the pandemic that like people with white collar jobs are like not going in the office anymore. For example, me, I used to go into the office every day before the pandemic and I have never gone into the office since the pandemic. And so I think that like, if there is underutilized or unused office space, that would seem like a logical existing infrastructure to, to convert into homes. Um, I guess the other novel thing or, or somewhat more time sensitive thing is that the Build Back Better bill, the massive infrastructure bill that, um, you know, un- unraveled. And 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 so there was talk, um, I think it was Leslie Ruta Smith, um, the, the current president, she, she mentioned sort of like a, a, a build, a, like a modified Build Back Better bill is sort of on life support from what she said. So there might be a push, you know, the, le- the legislative session, you know, before the sort of campaigning goes in earnest, the legislative session, I think, like, ends at the end of July, if my memory serves right. And and so there's maybe a hope of some kind of modified infrastructure bill that, that, that benefits the residential real estate industry. Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah. And, in in, you know, you hear about Google and possibly Twitter turning their office buildings into 
um, housing for the homeless. And so that mm-hmm. is an interesting mm-hmm. component of commercial into residential and in this, you know, in the same vein, helping, um, you know, some some of the, the homeless situations around the country. So that'll be interesting. And now, obviously, we have the, the class action lawsuit um, kind of you know, I'm sure that there's some talk about that at NAR. I know you're you haven't been there that long, but have you had heard any murmurs about you know how they expect that to possibly impact them, what they're doing, um, you know, whether agents and brokers are concerned um, or whether it might possibly change the industry? Yeah, that's. Um, I'm glad you asked that um, because I, I haven't, and basically there's. The National Association of Realtors. Um, I mean, the the agenda for the um, for this conference is publicly available. It's very substantive. Um, I mean, there's there's meetings. You know, um, there's about four meetings every 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 you know block of, of meetings, and and they deal with issues like um, there's a lot of stuff on fair housing. There's a lot of stuff on sort of land use regulatory issues, you know, I mean, it's not like just a fluffy conference. It's like, you know, an excuse to like, you know, get drinks afterwards. Um, but like, at the same time, there's there's nothing um, that explicitly addresses these antitrust lawsuits. And I guess for the audience, the National Association of Realtors has been sued in a number of lawsuits about real estate commissions and how the seller's commission is tied into the buyer's commission and the contention by plaintiffs in these lawsuits is that those uh, that commission tethering, um, which has existed for over 100 years, that commission tethering is artificially um, inflating commissions. And so basically last week, the plaintiffs were not successful in their arguments here per se, but they were successful in certifying a class of hundreds of thousands of consumers in, in the state of Missouri who... Um, were dealing with either Realogy, Berkshire Hathaway, um, Keller Williams, and Remax, and and so it creates this situation where now these big franchise networks and the National Association of Realtors, you know, have to defend themselves in court about like whether they were conspiring together to artificially inflate commissions. So, and then also the other backdrop is that the U.S. Justice Department is investigating the National Association of Realtors over this very matter. And so you would think that there would be like some kind of gesture toward this acknowledgement of this. And there hasn't. Um, I reached out to NAR last night um, with a bunch of questions about this. Um, They said they'd get back to me. But basically, for me as a reporter, like I kind of have to be proactive and ask people about this because it's not the kind of thing that's gonna, maybe I'll be wrong. I mean, this is like you said, it's only day two of five, but at least on the docket, it's not the kind of thing that, that seems like it'll just like come up and, and, and be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I can, I can see that, but I think it has huge implications for the industry. Um, so we'll see how that, you know, how that progresses moving forward. And you had mentioned um, fair housing being on on the docket, and I know Redfin recently settled a, a big fair housing lawsuit. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and what the implications are for even the industry based on on this lawsuit settlement? Yeah, yeah. So at the NAR meeting, there's a bunch of nods to fair housing, and and I, I think for NAR, kind of fair housing 
is about kind of increasing um i don't want to like mangle what what their actual perspective is but but part of it is about just sort of like increasing home ownership rates among non-whites particularly like the black home ownership rate i think off the top of my head is about like 44% whereas the white of 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 like us adults whereas the white home ownership rate is is closer to 70% and so you know part of the goal is is to give opportunities for first time home buyers who are black or or, or hispanic or, or non white uh, generally and um i think that dovetails with what's happening with redfin and so last week uh redfin and the national fair housing alliance they announced a settlement that said basically that uh redfin which kind of uses um an automated kind of system to ferret out like okay we're a popular listings website that is also a brokerage what kind of leads do we want to pursue from people that are coming to our website and looking at homes and so in the past redfin had a system where like if you're a prospective home buyer and you want to look at a home that's say $200,000 um Redfin might immediately kind of reject you and be like, "Well, look, it's just not worth our time to assign uh, one of our agents who happens to be an employee and who we happen to be paying a nominal salary and and providing healthcare to. It's just not worth it for that agent to deal with that person looking for a $200,000 home." What the settlement does with the National Fair Housing Alliance is that it basically eliminates minimum pricing. And so Redfin has to at the very least engage with that person. Now, what Redfin can do is they can refer to this hypothetical $200,000 buyer to a quote-unquote partner agent who is basically like somebody that works with Redfin from a different brokerage and then like if a deal goes down my understanding is you know they pay Redfin um you know a, a referral fee uh, and th- that's taken out of their commission and so they can do that they also can just like generally use like pricing policy as a guide so like if i'm you know a branch manager at the Redfin in Los Angeles and somebody wants to buy you know a $200,000 $300,000 home which i guess doesn't exist in Los Angeles but let's hypothetically say it does you know i i can't automatically reject that person but i can like basically like have a policy that like you know our priority customers are people that are more like in this price range and it's all very interesting because obviously you know there are many brokerages that exclusively you know focus on a high end clientele what's different about redfin is that they have this you know website where they have more of like processes in place in terms of like who to like give service to um and who to prioritize service to and then also you know in my opinion and the national fair housing alliance kind of disagrees with me on this but in my opinion redfin was legally vulnerable because their agents are employees and because of that there's this idea where you know basically like a branch manager at redfin can be like hey like don't it's really not worth your time to look at homes below the $400,000 threshold and if i as an independent contractor agent arrive at that conclusion like that's not really like grounds for a fair housing lawsuit but if like an employer is telling an employee that then that be- then it becomes something tantamount to sort of company policy and so 
I mean, this is all kind of complicated, and I'm I'm explaining it semi okay. But I I guess I would just zoom out and say that the reason that we're talking about price here is because price is arguably generally correlated with what neighborhoods you do and don't do business in. And so the crux of this lawsuit that had been filed was basically that Redfin's pricing policy is creating a situation where you are doing business if you're Redfin in majority white areas with where more than 50% of the population is white. And then you're doing less business in areas where more than 50% of the population is non-white. And so that's where it becomes grounds for a fair housing complaint. So again, to zoom out, like Redfin is kind of the first brokerage in sort of recent history that has faced kind of the wrath of one of these fair housing lawsuits and and Redfin very candidly said, and obviously this is, you know, you could see this as sort of, you know, Redfin saying they're a virtuous company publicly and stuff, but they very candidly said on Friday, like, look, we're going to lose money doing this, but we're happy to do this because we want to like give more opportunities for first time home buyers, but we're going to lose money compared to other brokerages because we're going to, you know, focus on lower income clients. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that Redfin didn't admit that it violated any Fair Housing Act or any other law that it really, um, according to the article that you wrote, um, they said they entered into the settlement agreement for the purpose of avoiding the burden and expense of protracted litigation. Um, So I, you know, I just want to make that clear to our audience that they did not um, admit to guilt in any of this. So what other um, issues are you seeing right now in the news? What are, what are you covering? Well, there's a ton going on. Um, one thing is that it's earnings calls on top of the NAR legislative meetings and on top of what's going on in courts with NAR right now. There's this week alone, um, we're going to see Zillow, Open Door, OfferPad, uh, former iBuyer, current iBuyers have their earnings calls. Compass has its earnings call next week. We already had an earnings call from Realogy. That was interesting because Realogy had a profitable year last year and kind of rode the the wave of, of a strong housing market. And, and so they're still a profitable company, but but their income was down. And that was partly because they drive a fair amount of sort of income from their mortgage joint venture with guaranteed rate. And and that has gone from like 61 million positive to like 3 million negative quarter over quarter, um, just in terms of the fact that like fewer people are are getting mortgages and and then the mortgage refinancing market as Housing Wire has thoroughly covered is is kind of cratered. And um, so... I think that it's very interesting to look at whether these brokerages, you know, who did, okay, maybe not great, but okay, like during the 2021 housing, you know, surge, if if there are people that are waiting out higher interest rates, or if there are kind of people that have been shut out of the housing market, because homes have become too expensive, and have said, like, we just need to go back. Uh, to renting and until inflation, you know, is tempered, whatever the case may be, because there's supposed to be, it's supposed to be still like a very high year for home sales, but it's not going to be as high as last year. That's what, 
you know, the National Association of Realtors and other forecasters are saying. And so the question is, in these earnings calls, are these real estate brokerages going to be hit by that? And then are newer business models like iBuying and, you know, so-called power buying in, in which it's, you sort of give somebody a bridge loan to help them buy a home in cash, like how how these business models, you know, might be affected by at least at least a modest downturn in, in, in the market. Yeah, that'll that'll really be interesting. And I think the power buyers have a better shot at doing well compared to maybe the I buyers, yeah. in my opinion. But I do want to mention that you had an article on Real Trends about Zillow and mm-hmm. um, their continued release of their I buying model, um, their sale of properties. So um, just very quickly, tell give give the audience just a description of their wind down, um, and I want to encourage them to go to realtrends.com and, and read the article because it's a, a great read. Thanks. Yes, sure. So basically, what the article is about is that back when Zillow wound down its eye buying in, in November, they uh, you know had eighteen thousand homes that they either had already purchased or had like signed a contract saying that they would purchase. And so what my article is about is like what happened to those 18,000 homes. And I think that, you know, at the start of the wine winding down, you know, the wall street journal uh, had a report, which Zillow has never like overtly confirmed, but also has never like denied. And so, but basically a report that said that Prenium partners, which is this New York city investment firm um, bought 2000 of these 18,000 homes. And then in February, in in like a story that like dovetailed with their um, yearly earnings call, Bloomberg reported that Predium acquired 1,200 additional homes. So that's that gives you 3,200. So what about these other homes? And basically, from what, what my reporting showed, just kind of like you know, very unscientifically going back into like the Internet Archive and and looking at sort of like. Zillow provides this website that's basically like Zillow owned homes for sale. So like all the iBuying, not all the iBuying inventory, because some of it might be off market for purposes of trying to sell to one of these institutional investors. But a lot of the iBuying inventory is on the Zillow owned homes uh, website. And so I looked at that website over a, a period of several months and it basically just looks like they're, you know, in in the sea of, you know, bidding wars and and people having to pay for homes above listing price. You know, if you're a buyer's agent and you find a Zillow owned home, like that's that's great. Like that's an opportunity for you. That that's what I learned from talking to real estate agents. And why is that a great opportunity? Because basically like the homes listed for $360,000 you can be like, okay, I'll pay $357,000 for it. And it's like a situation where like, you know, it's like a, a farmer's market, like the last 10 minutes of a farmer's market and basically like, well, if don't sell it to this jerk, then I have to like trash the food. And and so that's kind of the situation with Zillow. It's that like, okay, well, fine. $357,000 is fine. And then remember I spoke to a agent who was like I did in Charlotte and she was like I did you know I brought in an appraiser the appraiser said the home was worth ten thousand dollars less than um you know than what Zillow said it was and so Zillow was like okay fine we'll sell it to you for ten thousand dollars less so they're you know they're just trying to liquidate this inventory and they know they're gonna like do a loss on it you know they also know that because the housing market is so high demand that the loss 
will not like existentially cripple their business. And so it's kind of just like this, you know, rapid, like one by one wind down. And, you know, if you live in Charlotte or Colorado Springs or Austin, Texas or Atlanta, you know, some of these markets where their, their presence was big, you know, you could kind of get a bargain out of this. Yeah, that's any any bargain in today's market is is great. So um, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for for joining the Housing Wire Daily podcast again, and we really appreciate your insight on all of these current issues. Great, thanks a lot, Tracy. It was fun to talk about this stuff. How have the twenty twenty two housing market forecast changed, or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW+, membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.